everything changes as soon as you start to really understand how something is growing um, and the time that it takes to, to get it there. Um, you know, like with, with our pigs, it, it's a bit ridiculous. I mean, you know, we had 10 pigs running around on 64 acres. Like it's not, not many people can do that, right? But we noticed the quality of the meat. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. A sustainable restaurant model connecting with local producers and cooking delicious food seems like commonplace more and more. But for chef Evan Hayter, food is an extension of his restaurant story. And in eating it, you become part of his mission to give back to the land that provides so much. Evan, we talk about sustainability with food and restaurants, but you're really living, breathing example of how far you can push that. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's an awesome intro. Um, yeah, you're taking me back already. Um, yeah, we, we try to do the best that we can. Um, I think it's I think it's all most chefs that I surround myself with um, try to do anyway. Tell us a little bit about the restaurant and this the story behind it. Uh, well, the the restaurant was uh, was established in 2011 in February. It opened. Uh, I came on board um, about a year later. Uh, I've been part of the business now for five years, um, but the restaurant itself operates entirely off grid. Um, we're not connected to mains power at all. Uh, we we treat all of our wastewater. All of our green waste uh, goes to either composting or to the to the pigs, um, and yeah, it's it has its challenges. Obviously, um, losing losing power in the middle of a busy Saturday service or something like that, um, because we do operate in, entirely off grid, so no mains connection at all. Um, so um, yeah, it it has its challenges, definitely. Tell us about some of those challenges, especially in setting that up and working in that manner. Well, uh, I guess the technology has come a long way in the last uh, you know, 12, 12 years. Um, it, we operated on some pretty, pretty old, old batteries for a long time. Um, you know, really the early, the early days of, of um, the off-grid kind of uh, operating, and yeah, we, we used to we had to manage the load. Is probably the best way of putting it. So. You on a Saturday, you've got everything running: all your fridges, all your freezers, um, you know, front of house heating, cooling water, you, you name it, uh, dishwashers, all these little things that you just sort of take for granted. And you know, turning on a RoboCoop or something like that, um, and not overloading, not overloading the system because then it just shuts down, and then it's half an hour to turn it, turn it all off, reboot it, and get it going again. So it's, um, yeah. It's good fun, though. You learn, you learn a lot. You'd like to sort of explain yourself uh, as farmers first, as opposed to a restaurant and cellar door. What, what, what are you? What are you growing there, and what's happening on the land? Um, we, as, as far as the veggies and fruit that we produce, we're, we're quite specific about what we like to grow. Um, we're very lucky in our region and within say an hour and an hour and a half's drive of where we are located, um, we can we can pretty much get anything you could ever ever need or ever want. And there's always someone that grows it better than you. If it's um, you know, um, 
And tomatoes, for example, they've just finished up for us. Um, our tomatoes are pretty good, um, so we so we grow them. Um, carrots, you know, beetroots, things like that that require a lot more depth in soil and people that have been, you know, growing organically or biodynamically for a lot longer than I have um, produce far better carrots and beetroots. So so I like to source those those things from people that produce it better than I do. It's... it's uh, not worth, you know, my time to try to claim to be as good as them. So <laughs> you've um, forged some pretty amazing connections with local growers and farmers. You, tell us about pig farmers. What sort of uh, relationships have you fostered there? Well, we we farm our own our own pigs. Um, there are. They're a saddleback, saddleback Duroc cross, um, and so they're they're born on the property and you know raised, and we we look after them every day and give them belly rubs and you know all those sort of things, all the things that pigs need. <laughs> Take us into the life of uh, the pigs on the farm. What what sort of environment are they they growing in? Uh, so Aramie is about one hundred and thirty five acres. Um, so there's, there's quite a lot of land um, for the pigs to roam on. We like to move them around. Um, I mean, originally we, um, I, I got the pigs in the first place because of a extremely invasive weed called the arum lily. It's coming from Africa and it's um, it just takes over waterways. And the only way of kind of controlling that was to spray it with really, really, uh, you know, toxic agricultural sprays and... Um, I, you know, it killed, it killed everything as well as the, uh, the Aram lily. And it's, it's your responsibility as a property owner to, um, to manage uh, these, these lilies. Uh, but no one does because no one sort of polices it. But I just try to, try to come up with a better way of doing it rather than spraying them. And um, I found out that pigs um, are, are pretty, pretty tolerant of these things and, and actually – they love they love digging them up, and we go along and pick up the bulbs afterwards and, and burn them off. And um, yeah, it's yeah. So it started as a kind of regeneration project, uh, and the byproduct of that is delicious pork. Um, so the pigs are as much of you know our story as as you can as any of us. <laughs> They're just as important. <laughs> tell, tell us about their life cycle there. And, um, you know, has, has, has that changed as you sort of try and get the best product that lands on the plate as well? Yeah, de- definitely. Um, the life cycle of, of our pigs. Um, well, we have, we have one sow and we have one boar. Uh, the boar lives on another, another farm. Uh, he's a Duroc boar and our sow is, gorgeous gorgeous girl um she was born on the property about five years ago um and she's um duroc saddleback and she's a big brown big brown pig big floppy ears and like i say she's absolutely gorgeous um she uh, she roams around on about 64 acres at the moment uh and basically we we get her in pig uh, and then there's the you know the gestation. We and then the, the piglets are born. We raise them, and they take about a year to get to to um, where we where we like them uh, before we send them off <laughs> for that one day. It's always sad. <laughs> well, after that one day, and um, you get them back in the kitchen. But what do you, what do you do with a with a whole pig, and how do you utilize that across the menu? 
Yeah, um, I mean, they get used in all sorts of uh, different processes. Um, you know, all the all the fat. Lot, well, a lot of a lot of that um, shoulder fat goes into lardo. Um, the we, we'll do big batches of say pork ragu. Um, you know, our, it currently our our kids' meal is um, it's a it's a pork ragu pasta essentially, and it's made with great West Australian certified organic flour, eggs from our chickens, um, and then it's pork ragu, which is made from tomatoes from the garden, olive oil off the property, biodynamic onions, and and our pork, which is, I believe, sensational. So, <laughs> Take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play for you and your family? Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't that it wasn't that important actually. Um, my parents are both in teaching. Uh, grew up in Karratha, and um, yeah, my uh, you know our, our regular night was my mother cooking just you know your, your uh, meat and three veg kind of um, dishes. Uh, you'd you'd have uh, yeah, it was it was good food. Uh, you know, not not exceptional, but uh, but good. <laughs> When did you start to get interested in a, in food and see that as a potential career? Uh, oh, I um, I left school uh, just in just into year eleven. Um, I I just wasn't enjoying school at all. Um, I was absolutely acing maths, but I couldn't yeah I couldn't do English to save myself uh, and. Yeah, it didn't leave me too many, too many options. Uh, I had a cousin who had a restaurant and he said, come and, come and wash some dishes and hang out in the kitchen and you might enjoy it. So I went and did that for two weeks and, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Um, I just uh, – I'm, I'm not sure. It's, you know, we all get pretty addicted to it, I guess. Um, it's, it's a pretty hectic place. There's lots of, lots of pressure and um, I just – didn't mind it at all. Really enjoyed it, uh, and and it was something completely different to anything I'd done. So, uh, I I finished my two week stint uh, with him, and then uh, I I went back to school for for a week and wasn't enjoying it. And um, yeah, I I basically signed up to TAFE, and and the rest was sort of history. I guess I started cooking and got an apprenticeship a couple of months later, just because TAFE ended up being too much like school as well. So. <laughs> I just wanted to work. What were some of the really key sort of uh, venues or, or people that that influenced you in the early years as a chef? Um, I was quite lucky uh, that I, I when I started my apprenticeship, I started a restaurant called Dear Friends, which is in the um, Swan Valley, uh, just outside of Perth. And my my head chef then, uh, his name was Philip Soir. He was. Um, it just the most the, the loveliest Singaporean chef, and he'd basically moved to the Swan Valley for the simple life. Um, he'd won uh, multiple culinary Olympic gold medals with the Singaporean team. Uh, he'd worked all over the world, um, been in France for years and years. He spoke fluent French, Mandarin, English, uh, and he was just a really gentle character and I think I, I spent two years um, at Dear Friends and he just he showed me a lot and, and it was I was very lucky to have that as my first job you know I had friends working at other restaurants where they're having pans thrown at them and I I, I didn't have that <laughs> um, I, you know so 
extremely grateful for it. Um, and then from there, I moved on to the Subiaco Hotel, which was, again, uh, one of the, probably the most inspirational chef that I've worked with um, was Brad Burton. Uh, and he, again, like a gentle giant, um, but you knew that you had to work hard. Um, he, he had the team. The whole team was behind him, and um, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Different, different setting to dear friends. It was a fast-paced kitchen, um, and yeah, it was on. As soon as you walked in, it was on. There was no time to, no time to relax, and um, yeah, it, but it was an incredible experience. How did the opportunity at Aramea arrive? Uh, so um, there was quite a. Uh, well, I guess a devastating loss in uh, my immediate family, uh, which kind of uh, sent me to ju- like to to travel. Um, so my partner and I packed everything up and we we went overseas for a few years. Uh, and when when we returned, we we were back in Perth, and, and Perth just didn't it didn't really feel like home anymore. So we were spending all of our weekends down in Margaret River and. Um, yeah, we just went bugger it. Let's let's move down there. We we had a few friends living down here already, and um, yeah, so we we bought a house and I took a job <laughs> about the same week, and we yeah we got down here and just went for it. I guess um, you know it was it was a difficult difficult move, but it's worked out now. <laughs> you mentioned you spent a couple of years overseas. What sort of impact did that have on on your cooking career? Um, I think from a, from a produce point of view, um, a massive, a massive impact. Um, we, I, I didn't really do the, the norm, I guess. I, um, I, I did fly into London and caught up with a couple of friends, but I then got on a boat and went to the Netherlands of all places. Um, yeah, we, my, my partner's in architecture, so... Uh, it was a great opportunity for her. I wanted to work Michelin, and so uh, we we both got to sort of fulfil our dreams. Um, but yeah, we we went and lived in in the Hague in Den Haag, and it was um, it was an incredible experience working in a kitchen that spoke very little English, um, living in quite a small city, I guess. It, you know, it's an important city, um, but we really kind of immersed ourselves in in the culture, and you know, all of our friends were were Dutch and it was, it was fantastic. The people were just incredible and um, easy to get a job. And yeah, it was, um, it was great. So I had a good experience. Was, was life a little bit different in, in the kitchen compared to the kitchens you'd been used to? Yeah, it was, it was different. Um, We, we, we do five split shifts a week. Uh, Excuse me. That wasn't, um, that wasn't, too unusual to you know what I'd been doing back here, um, but we our our work day was was probably fifteen or sixteen hours, uh, and we we lunch together. So I'd go to work, we'd do our prep for the morning, then we'd do the staff meal, and it was in a hotel, the restaurant that I worked at, uh, and so everyone would sit down and and have food together, and then we'd go play football for an hour across on the lawn, and then we'd be back into it and into service. And so I wasn't home very often <laughs> during the days that I was working. Um, so yeah, it was it was different, but we I, I don't know, I I really 
really enjoyed it. Um, you never really thought about the time, and, and I'm sure I'm sure most chefs kind of feel that as well. You know, like you, you're abroad, you're doing something completely different. You, you know, you've got a guy coming to the back door with white truffles, or you know, you name it. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty different. So you're always doing something different, which which keeps it keeps it fresh. The off grid nature of Aramea um, has, has that had an impact on the way that you cook and the sort of food that you cook. Yeah, I think so. Is my approach to produce uh, and understanding better farming, um, the, the conversations that you can have with people, um, the relationships that you can build. Uh, I think everything everything changes as soon as you start to really understand how something is growing um, and the time that it takes to, to get it there. Um, you know, like with it, with our pigs, it, it's a bit ridiculous. I mean, you know, we had 10 pigs running around on 64 acres. Like it's not, not many people can do that, right? Um, but we noticed the quality of the meat. Uh, we, we also, we grow them out till they're about oh, 13, 13 months old before we send them off. And at 13 months, they are the same size as something that's, you know, that's been pushed uh and they're they're four to six months old and so that's pretty it's pretty eye-opening um uh yeah and then that you know that comes down to vegetables um you know we've i've got an incredible um grower who i've worked with for about seven years and and you know like i think originally it's it's almost down to her that I, i started to well she got me looking at things a lot a lot more different so uh, she's a biodynamic grower, certified biodynamic, um, and yeah, she she just grew these carrots, and and, and I had these carrots, and I, I it was like I'd never eaten a carrot before, like it was so sweet and delicious, and and it just made me think, man, we got no idea what we're doing, <laughs> like we got no idea of good produce, and anyone who grows grows things themselves, you know, you, you have these moments always, don't you? You know, you get, geez, that basil was more basilly than ever. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> how is this possible? And, um, yeah, so it's those little things and that definitely changes the way that we approach our food. Absolutely. Sustainability, whether on the farm or, you know, in a restaurant context is sometimes put in the too hard basket for operators and um, and also think it's quite costly. With the experience that you have, are there some really easy steps that sort of operators could take? Um, well, yeah, definitely. There's, there's so much waste. I think, I think we're all, we're all pretty aware of it. Um, wasting kitchens and, and in our industry, um, you know, the use of plastics, things like that, implementing little, little things like that. Anyone, anyone who takes single, single use plastics out of their kitchen and it's actually such an easy change to make, but you all have to be on board. And then once you do that, you realise that there's some something else that you can do. You realise that there's you know you can you can stop overfeeding people or cut down on portion sizes. Be more aware of you know what you're putting on a plate, what's coming back, if if at all. And I mean it's a balance. And you know running running a business, you're still you're striving not to waste anything, obviously because it's so so expensive to do what we do. Um, but yeah, there's definitely there's loads of little things. Um, I mean, it, we only use rainwater. We wash dishes with rainwater. Um, it's 
it's quite crazy. Uh, but we all have to be aware in the middle of summer if if you know we have to cut down on the numbers that we we cook for because we can't use too much water, right? Otherwise, we're going to run out. Um, so so you always have to be you always have to be aware of those things. And our position is quite different, I think, to any other any other restaurant. Uh, but, um, and anyone that operates in this kind of way would understand it, even households, I guess. Um, but, yeah, there's always little things that you can do that you can do better. And um, I think as soon as you start down the road of the whole, I guess, sustainability, I, I don't know. I just We, we kind of do what we do because it's the right thing to do. So we, we just try to we just try to push ourselves and be, and be better every day. And I surround myself with, with chefs and whatnot that um, are quite like-minded and they, they get it. They get it and you just push them a little bit and, and we get there. Tell us a little bit about your cooking. Do you have a, a pork dish or two that you can tell us about that sort of epitomizes sort of where you're at as a chef? Oh, I mean, that, that kid's past is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, you know, nothing kind of reflects our property more than, more than the pork ragu. Um, uh, a dish, a, a pork dish that epitomizes what we what we stand for. I mean, the fact that the pigs are, are born and raised on the property, uh, I think our approach to our pork is pretty – anything we do with it is pretty special. Um, but I, I wouldn't be able to – I wouldn't be able to pinpoint a specific dish. Maybe the lardo, maybe the, maybe the smoked lardo, which we smoke with a bit of um, the peppy leaves, which are – it's an endemic um, tree to our region. And um, yeah, it's just super, super strong peppermint flavour. And when you smoke with it, it's incredible. It gets into everything. Uh, but with with the pork fat, it's really cool. It, it translates to the dishes really well. So um, yeah, and and then a lot of the charcuterie, um, like our you know our prosciuttos and uh, lomos and and things like that that we that we produce are. Um, yeah, I mean, we we love it. It's it's such a connection. It's it's born on the property. Like it, we see the pigs every day. You know, they yeah. We're we're very very lucky to have what we have. You mentioned the charcuterie that you're making. Tell us a little bit about some of the some of the products that you're making and uh, the real successes that you've had there. Um, successes, um, yeah, you have a few. <laughs> it's um i hear it on i hear it with a lot of the chefs that that come on on your podcast actually you know i talk about the the successes and the failures and you you definitely have a few that you go oh i don't know what happened there uh but let's work it out um successes would be the prosciutto uh the first time i successfully made prosciutto i was i'm pretty happy um and I haven't really had a failure with the prosciutto as such, but it's um, it's yeah, it, it just the time that it takes to to make something like that. It's pretty satisfying when you cut it open, and it's um, yeah, it's nice. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, you know, we we make a lot of copper, we lo- make a lot of lomo. Can you tell us um, one of the processes of one of one of the favourite products that you have that um, that you're making? Um, the, uh, what have we done? Um, I'm trying to think of the the copper, the last copper that we did, we did with um, coriander seed and anise myrtle. Um, 
so the coriander seed was was saved out of the garden and dried and ground up um and so so it's it's cured for a, about a month under under a bit of pressure and then it's uh rolled and hung for another another couple of months really um before we before we cut into it and have a little look at it but um we found that we found that those those two flavors penetrated the meat really really well um and with our with our pigs i mean they're not they're not really old animals um like you know traditionally you'd use old sows or boars for for making a lot of the charcuterie uh, but we find that there's quite a lot of flavor in it in the meat a lot of marbling so um so we get a really waxy finish on on our coppers in particular so they're pretty yeah pretty satisfying um, pigs are really at the heart of lots of what you do uh, there. Do you, do you have any tips or tricks on getting the best sort of uh, roast pork or crackling? Oh, um, hanging definitely hanging the animal um, when when we first receive it back split. Um, we we hang the halves for for about a week before we break them down, um, and I find that if you can if you can leave the pig for uh, a week to I don't know, nine or ten days, uh, just to dry out that skin, that that little bit. Um, that really, that really does help with it. Uh, and then, I mean, everyone's everyone's got a little bit of a different thing that they do, I guess, with their with their crackling. Um, if it's if it's our belly uh, or even our shoulder, sometimes we like to just cook it in a in a little uh, bath of pork stock, um, probably just an inch of pork stock in a tray. Cover it with um, cover it with a lid. And just stick that in the oven for you know an hour and a half, and then then we'll remove the lid, score the skin, salt the skin, let it sit for about an hour, and then we'll go back in to roast it and slowly dry that out, and then up the up the heat, and um, away you go with crackling. You've uh, had a pretty sharp career change and doing some pretty incredible things there. Um, what do you love about what you do? Um, I, I do love everything about it. Uh, it, it's always challenging. Uh, there's, there's, um, it's, a, it's a pretty different role. Um, you know, uh, the, the farming side of things is extremely uh, rewarding and, and interesting. Uh, I mean, we, we farm, uh, what, are we, what have we got? We've got trout. We have trout in the winter. Um, we have marron. There's 400 olive trees, so we, we – um, you know, we, we press olive oil every two years, about 1,600 litres. Uh, we cure all the olives we use in the restaurant. Um, we've obviously got the pigs. The garden's about an acre um, and then the fruit orchard. Uh, 60 beehives. Yeah, so we've, you know, there's, there's things and the chefs all get involved with with everything. So, um, yeah, there's always something, there's always something happening. And I, I love it when I love it when I've got a really like-minded team, which is what what we have right now. We're, we've been so lucky in this last twelve months. It's um, yeah, um, it's incredible. It, and it's just it's been a, a real treat to see where we've gotten to in the, in this last last year. I reckon um, with a good team. <laughs> Well, Evan, it's incredible what you've created there and I'm uh, very honoured to have you on the Crackling Day to hear today to hear your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. It was my pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. 
I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.